Hi, this is Aaron Azrod. Welcome to the 14th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. In our last episode, we discussed what the life of a Roman slave would have been like. Today, we will be focusing on the life of an average citizen from the formation of the Republic to the fall of the Republic, ending with Julius Caesar. Thanks for having me back, Aaron. So yeah, so I, I think you're, I think this is a, a good topic. A lot of people think when they think of Rome, they think of like one continuous institution from its myth, myth, mythical founding with Romulus and Remus all the way up to Julius Caesar. But the truth is, is that Rome went through many changes and metamorphoses in both its economic, military, social policies, as well as just like the average citizen of Rome. And I, I think that you can really get a good feel for the kind of like the pulse of a, a, a nation based on how the average citizen functions. So Rome, Rome was founded. Okay, so we're not exactly sure exactly when it was founded. Any, or any true records were, have been lost to history for various reasons. Traditionally, historians view the founding of Rome in the like mid 700 BC. So like 750-ish would be a good guess. The myth says that Rome was founded by a pair of brothers who were abandoned at birth and were wet nursed by a wolf, um, Romulus and Remus. And then they set up, they set up their new, their new country, not country, new town, state, whatever you want to call it, on the Palatine and Aventine Hill, respectively. And uh, obviously with, with Romulus setting up on the Palatine Hill and Remus setting up on the Aventine Hill. And then there's like some disagreements on to exactly what happened, but uh, there was a disagreement. Romulus killed Remus and the city became called Rome. Uh, <laughs> you know, had things gone differently, maybe we would be talking about Reman history instead, but such is life. Uh, I want to ask the wolf some questions. It seems like that was one magical wolf that it gave birth to an <laughs> empire that would last thousands of years. That's some awesome parenting right there. There's some <laughs> there's some speculation that the wolf, the where that myth comes from is she-wolf is like a slang term in that era for like prostitute. And so some people possibly believe what it actually that myth comes from they were like born from like a prostitute centuries millennium literally of mistranslations have changed it from a slang term for a prostitute to a literal female wolf got it got it doesn't, I guess, doesn't I guess, really matter i guess but. in that instance being raised by wolves isn't such a bad thing you go on to found an empire yeah like the, <laughs> one of the largest contiguous land empires of all time pretty good <laughs> I don't know many wolves that could probably claim that. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, Rome is like originally founded, not, let's say, the, not the most savory of, of characters. Founded by kind of like criminals, thieves, murderers, rapists. It's like basically R Romulus throws open the door and says, anyone can come and settle in my city, all outcasts welcome. Rome certainly came from not so, came from ignoble beginnings. And this is, I think, pretty interesting because this is, true or not, this is the story that Rome told its citizens. And this, especially for this time period, is very interesting. This is a time period where people are tying their, their, their history to God's and legends. This is the story that Rome tells its citizens, that they tell each other. This is their history. And it's this is really interesting because this is, even today, it's rare for countries to talk about their origin so negatively. Even Australia, probably when it talks about the origins of Australia, it probably tries to downplay the British penal colony thing as much as possible. But Rome, here's Rome out in the open talking like, yeah, we, we were founded by murderers and thieves. Our our founder was literally nursed by by a wolf, right? Like <laughs> this is, we today might think this is cool, but back then this would have literally been like an insult. They are not ashamed of their, their like humble origin. These 
early on these Roman citizens. So so Romulus, and I, I hesitate to say he does this because the truth is is that it's it's not just him. It's it's probably he is probably like a collection of people like roped into one. Which is just like a, a nice narrative for storytelling, right? Like yeah, if you absolutely. could have like a mythical figure that just started it all, that's a lot easier than talking about like the third subcommittee that decided to do this and that. Yeah, and and just also in general, like things get lost to history, and then it's like you lose the stuff that mentions the less important people. The person at the top will always get mentioned, no matter what. So when I the reason I say that is I'm just saying as I say. Like Romulus did this, Romulus did that. Take that with a bit of a grain of salt. It's like what I'm really saying is Romulus's administration, and then even then, what I'm really saying is early Roman administrations, because Romulus might not even have existed. <laughs> He's just a convenient creation myth, right? So Romulus creates the. He's gonna like be the king, right? He's gonna be the king of Rome. But even from the very beginning, Rome was not going to have just a king. And Romulus picks from the the, the people who settled uh, a small number of of grown men to be the senators to form the governing body of of, of Rome. The people that he pick, their descendants will be the patrician class for Rome the upper mm-hmm. class, right? And especially early on, especially early on, that pedigree is going to be really, really important. Later on in the late empire, it won't matter as much because people will be able to get rich without being a patrician. But especially early on, like that won't be the case. Patrician will be rich and non-patricians will not be. But there's <clears throat> there's not a lot of them. There's not like a huge, huge amount. And for the most part, the citizens of Rome are like, these like noble farmers they work their small plots of land they rome has a um rome has these like characteristics that they they value in their citizens there's latin names for them but i'll I'll just say them in english you have like uh piety servitude simplicity integrity dignity virtue right like that's these are the things that that rome cares about and that in theory, all Roman citizens seek to exemplify. What exactly, like if they, if you were a farmer and you had to demonstrate your, your piety, like how, how exactly would you do that? Like what, 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 what who, who was really ranking you there on your, whoa, uh, did you see uh, Brett? He's farming. He's a very pious farmer over there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not, no one's ranking you. You're not getting like a, a, a card that you put in your mm. window that's like grade A piety. It's, <laughs> It, it, piety in this case, so in English, piety translates to like religiousness. Mm-hmm. But in this case, what it it's really means is like duty, loyalty, devotion. It's called pietas in Latin, right? And a pietas farmer would go out and till the fields to to grow food for the community, even if it was really bad out, even if he didn't need to, even if it was dangerous, he would he would do his duty to the city of Rome. Yes. Now, I'm actually, wow, that, that is really quite amazing and something that actually really strikes me because this seems like one of the only times where we actually have a meritocracy that is based on some type of virtue. Like you can actually get ahead in this system by your behavior, your actions. It's kind of like when you're at the, I imagine these farmers who are under the, the Romulus administration, they're, they're kind of there on the ground floor, right? It's not like they're, they, they kind of have to earn their way up the ladder because they can't just point to their, oh, well, I'm sure that happens later on where they could say, well, my grandfather was this patrician or so forth. But it's like, I, I kind of like systems that are new because you actually have a meritocracy that's based on what it is that you do or the value that you are bringing, not so much who you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're correct. So, I mean, there is still some of that because, like, the patricians are are still the the, the ruling class, um, and the farmers. It's still about who you know. It's not entirely just like 
work hard and, and get ahead. So we have Pietas, we have Severitas, Gloria, Simplicitas, Integritas, Dignitas, Virtuas. Those are them. Those are those are they. So for being simple, you can actually get points if you just have like a simple life or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even even uh, I mean, you're laughing, but like for sure in um, in American culture, we prefer like if we're looking at like we'll call them model citizens, model citizens are quiet and reserved and they do live simple lives. We we look in our country, we look down on people who are like too extravagant well i i think you see that's that's a great question about like american culture because i i think i i think it's like a magical blending of the thing like we that's... like because i think that if you're just simple like if i let, let's just say for example i took a job up as being a carpenter but i didn't have like magical complicated stuff going on under the hood then i'm just a regular carpenter and no one's paying me any respect so i think it's i think it's this blending of like they right. are paying you respect though you'll be looked upon favorably in your community they'll be like oh aaron he's a good carpenter he never hurt anyone never got in anyone's way in Rome, but here. No, here too. I think. I mean, I guess that's an opinion. So I certainly would. Yeah. I would no. I mean, I think. I think that. amongst us, like there, there's definitely like I, we definitely have respect for people who keep their mouth shut, do their job. I mean, I, I'll ask you this, Aaron. I'll ask yeah. you this. What to you, in your mind, feels more Americana, small town Midwest, or like metropolitan New York City? You know, the, the, I, it's a good it, it's a good question, and I, I know that the default answer would be like the Midwest or whatever. Yeah, but, it is. But if when you actually they're... go to the Rust Belt and you see how many of these people have actually been just utterly left behind, and no one really pays heed to them. It, this it, isn't a this isn't a question about who's better off or who's being favored. It's a question of like in the American zeitgeist. How, which one does America view as like their actual roots and which one do they view as like a side effect of the American dream, right? And I, I agree with you that when I think of like, I mean, I don't even have to say, you know, you know, because of political campaigns and politicians <laughs> that when people say real America, they are not talking about New York. They're not talking about Los Angeles. They're talking about small towns with a general store run by a guy who's owned it for 80 years. And he goes fishing in his favorite lake spot once a month with his dog and his kid. Simplicity is still looked upon favorably. And even though there are people in America who gravitate towards the more extravagant lifestyle the the culture not the counterculture but like the the cultural center is still simplicity good complexity bad i i, I hear what you're saying but i can't help but feel that it's like a false homage to these people like i feel like we we pay a lot of lip service to that kind of lifestyle but then secretly every all the young people are secretly trying to get the hell out of these places and move to coastal cities so that they can get an education yeah. and get a job so I think that the difference between the United States is that we provide false lip service as to like glorifying this lifestyle, but we really don't. Whereas maybe in Rome, if you actually did keep your mouth shut and you actually were like a noble farmer that was there plowing when the rain was going intensely, you could actually move up the ranks. Whereas here in the US, I, I think we'll, we'll pay you a lot of false lip service, but unless you get the hell out of that place and move to a coastal city and start drinking Starbucks and moving up the corporate hierarchy or whatever it is, then, then we start looking at you and paying you respect. Like if Warren Buffett, for example, like, you know, there's these stories that he goes to McDonald's drive throughs and gets coffee, but if he wasn't like a cool, intricate billionaire, then no one would give a crap that he's eating egg McMuffins from McDonald's. So I, I think we falsely or, or like disingenuously pay homage to that lifestyle, but we actually don't really value it. Well, that's the thing is that it probably was the same in Rome, in like almost identical to the way that we do it, where it's like you have the rich are like basically saying – like, oh, you know, it's good to be simple. It's good to not want a lot of things, but it's really kind of just like a bit of a form of control to kind of like get people to be happy with their station in life so they'll leave you, you know, alone. It's probably similar. Their Rome's view of simplicity is probably similar to America's view of simplicity.
right? Mm. When when Roman politicians are trying to talk up their like you know like uh, vote for me for senator vote for my bill they do the same thing that our politicians do they pretend to be from small towns they pretend to be from rustic means right <laughs> and so th- they favor simplicity the same way that we do which is on paper lip service you never want to be the guy that seems to be too extravagant whether or not everyone is secretly dying to be a millionaire is one thing, but on the surface, everyone needs to pretend that they wake up every day and work real hard and struggle. Ah, okay. But I think this is important. I think this is actually a very important conversation because I'm wondering if like the things that go on today are just a result of the modern world or if they're the oldest tricks in the book. Oldest tricks. <laughs> because it's like in Rome, then they may have had these uh, virtues such as being pious, uh, such as simplicity. But in actuality, you just had to kind of create the image of those things. You didn't actually have to be those things in order to move I mean, up. They'll, they'll always be this like fox in the hen house effect where the, the people who are trying to grasp for power want you to play by the diff- different rules because, and I don't mean that necessarily in like an, a crazy, like a very insidious way, like they have their own laws. Cause that's, we're not getting that concrete right here, but rather it, like throughout history, I, I can't speak for modern day because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I do know what goes on behind the scenes in history and throughout <laughs> and throughout history, there's always you nations survive when the citizens believe that these are like the ways to be a productive member of society. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to follow these rules. And in fact, the ones that don't follow these rules are generally going to be the ones at the top. I, I guess like maybe the people on the top are not following these things, but I think it's it, it's overall a positive thing if the everyday citizen is following it. So you know, Absolutely. so you go to your local butcher, you go to your local farmer, and you're like, all right, at least my next door neighbor is honest. The politician running the show here is not honest, but I can count on my next door neighbor to be honest. I think that America, the United States, is still still like this because I'm thinking more about what you said, and the more I think about it, it's like, could you imagine if a politician was like came out and was like, you know, talking about, let's say, like school lunches. And they were like, oh, my 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 maid always made the tastiest and most nutritious lunches. And then they were like, well, do you know how to cook? And the politician like scoffed and was like, I would never cook. That's so far beneath my station. <laughs> like they would be, that would be it, right? It's so ludicrous to even say, of course they would never say that. They have to be like, oh, you know, when I was younger, before I cut my teeth, I, you know, I lived on my own and I, I learned to cook and I did everything by hand. I built it. Th- this idea of like hardworking simplicity is baked into our culture. Yes. You know? Yes. No, everyone wants to be rich. Yes. But when you're trying to gain the favor of your fellow citizens, even among the super rich, everyone is trying to show off as much as they can their, their, their humble beginnings and how hard they had to work and how much work they put in. Perhaps we as a society need to start getting better at having more refined BS meters and being like, uh, nonsense. We saw the con, you didn't build that yourself. You know, you had contractors come in at night and do the, and build that check. You know, it was like, and I, I think that that that's really important that we start calling this out as much as humanly possible, because I, I think that that's kind of taking away from the people who genuinely live those lifestyles. I think there are people who genuinely build their own houses and genuinely do those things. And to falsely advertise that you live that lifestyle when in fact you don't, I think is, is really, it's discrediting the people who actually put in that hard work and live that way. I mean, what you're referring to is, is a sociological term called appropriation. Yes. You, if you're actually selling your character, your background, your history, the family you were brought into in this world, if you're like falsely, you know, fa- like revealing like a false image, I mean, that's just a counterfeit lifestyle. You're, you're basically presenting a counterfeit lifestyle without av- actually having put in the legwork to, to, to make that a reality. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, one, of, one of the ways that, that we humans kind of like litmus test each other in terms of like how much we're going to like someone is through shared experience Mm, and so 
it's it's dangerous. It's out. It's basically it is literally lying to pretend you have these experiences. And when you when you take into account that the reason they're lying about having these experiences is because they want to make a connection with you so they can get something from you, it just becomes all the more sinister. You have to be a straight up sociopath to go up to somebody and be like, oh yeah, I grew up in that same neighborhood, or I grew right around there, and 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 just basically extract like you're basically connecting dots that don't actually exist in order to get people into a false sense of security uh, when they're talking with you. Insane. Oh my God. We are one messed up species, my friend. Okay. So, <laughs> Rome has, okay. Rome has these virtues and at least the positive part is that it seems like the common farmer, the, mm-hmm. the common merchant, the common person living there is at least living by those virtues. So at least the people on the ground level are subscribing to that. So I guess that's, yeah. that's somewhat of a net positive. Yeah. And they like to think they are. It's a little murky on whether or not this kind of like idealized Roman farmer ever actually existed, or if it was just kind of in the same way that like, Again, in America, we often hear people talk about like, oh, the bygone age of America when people were like this and not like this. And, you know, kids today, they're always looking at their phones, you know. So it's like, oh, you could think of it as like that kind of analogy where it's like, was this bygone day of, of the United States where kids played out until the streetlights went out and they caught June bugs and kids were honest and tough and girls were (laughs) polite and you know like this like weird like whitewashed kind of view of of American society did this ever actually exist or is it just one weird perspective it's the same thing with this like noble Roman farmer yeah this is very interesting we kind of love to paint I guess we like to paint the past always as being more glorious than what it actually was. I, I guess that, that oh, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> for sure. Okay, so th- we we have we have this virtue system it seems to be working. Some some people are maybe being genuine and getting ahead, others aren't. What where do we go from there? So Rome right from the get-go is very militaristic. Mm-hmm. And they begin aggressively expanding their borders from they they are attacking conquering and assimilating their neighbors the latins the etruscans the the people uh living in in sicily right they're pushing north they're pushing east they're pushing south they're pushing west they're going everywhere and as they do this the rich are getting considerably richer the people who lead the art the romans at this point are serving in the army because they're noble, or so you, we would be led to believe. They're serving in the army because the Rome demands it. It's it's your duty to, to defend Rome, and so off you go. The people who lead these armies are the senators, the consulars, or Roman president, if you will, and they are getting the majority of the spoils. And on top of getting the majority of the loot from invading these countries, which is very lucrative, these these farmers are being taken away from their farms for large stretches of time. And while they're gone, often, very often, their farms fall into disrepair. And there are laws in Rome about how long you can have land that is agri- uh, that is usable for farming, not being used for farming. You're not, it's illegal to do that. So hold on. Now, these people who are taken into the military, they're conscripted or they volunteer to be in this military? They're mostly volunteering. So they're, okay. So they're volunteering and they're, they're, they're helping, I guess, the state. Let's say, let's say they're being like coerced. Think of it like the American army. They're joining for very similar reasons that people join the American army. But there, you know, there's one interesting thing. Like if, for example, if you have a job and you join the armed services in America, they actually have to hold on to your job. So there's actually a law that says if you, if I, if you, let's say you have a job as a computer programmer, but then you decide to join the Marines, they will actually, your employer has to hold on to your job while you're through service. So it's interesting that Rome would, coerce, entice, cajole, whatever you want to say, these farmers, but then the law is actually working against these farmers saying, oh, by the way, we want you to fight. But by the way, if you leave your farm, you know, uh, vacated for more than 12 months or something, it's going to be 
taken away? Is that what happens? Uh, basically. Uh, so while these these soldiers are fighting for various reasons, ranging from feeling the call of adventure to feeling a sense of duty to their country to wanting to make money off of pillaging faraway towns, you know, all sorts of reasons. Um, while they're gone, their farms will fall into disrepair. Uh, oftentimes, they would be lied to about how long they'd be away for, right? And then once you're in the army, you can't just leave. That's desertion. What? One thing that could happen would be the rich would like come by your farm and they would be like, you should sell your land to me. You need the money because no one's working your land. You're, you need food. You need money for food, right? Um, and then they would sell. And then another thing that would happen would be the government would come by and be like, we're taking your land because it needs to be farmed and you're not doing it. What man, this this really sounds like, uh, you know, gentrification and white flight in the 60s and 70s, where <laughs> basically what you would happen is that you would have these houses that would kind of like in, in the city that would like fall into disrepair and then. Uh, wealthy investors would come in, buy these properties in like, you know, neighborhoods such as Brooklyn and so forth that, that you know, w would be economically depressed for a while, but then they would kind of re rebuild it up and watch their property value or, you know, the government would sometimes take things over under the uh, under eminent domain and, and pay what they felt was fair market value. But then, you know, a decade or so later, that place was worth a lot more. These these tricks seem really, really old. I really wish more people studied history and didn't just discount it as like, oh, history is just an interesting, interesting stories of things, but they really happen. Like it's it's more than just like a Marvel movie that's actually a documentary. It's like <laughs> the the same things that have been happening that are happening today have happened hundreds of times in hundreds of places throughout history. And it's like you can learn a lot from just like understanding what happened and what was the result. And you know, you could almost see like prophetically, like, well, what's what happens next, right? Yes. Now, now this is this is actually this is so interesting because I think that sometimes when we're studying Rome, we get so caught up in the Neros, the Caligulas, and all of these like really epic stories, which are great and they have great drama and they yeah. make for great movies and so forth. But you actually learn about like how society is essentially the same or the tricks that the elite have been, been you know have been pulling by actually studying the common person. I think when you actually study the common person of any given civilization, that's where you actually begin to develop the tools to understand your life as it is now, because it's been, it's been like that for so long. Yeah. 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 And um, we'll see, we'll see as I, as we go on a little bit here that as these farms get bought up, what's going to happen is these soldiers have no form of income anymore. They have no land. Their identity as a noble citizen farmer has been obliterated. It's no longer a thing. And so what they're going to be forced to do is they're going to have to share crop. They're going to have to become tenant farmers, which is where you pay, you like you farm the land and then you give the the actual landowner like a portion or percentage of your your crop but like this is not good like losing like 20 30 40 percent of your income to what essentially is rent you know it's it's for nothing and now you have these these rich landowners who are just passively generating income off of your work i mean i hate to sound too communisty here but it's like they're parasites no, you know. it's actually funny that I was actually about to use this. Sounds like a, like a Marxist, <laughs> like a Mar <laughs> a Marxist like uh, paradigm here. And it also reminds me. It's like this is basically Roman style feudalism. You know, you don't none of like all of these. You know, we'll use the word sharecroppers, but we could probably also superimpose the word serf into that as well. Where the goal, like the goal, always is, is to deprive the average person of of their property, right? Because property, mm -hmm. land, you know, land property is a finite resource. So, I, I guess these early Romans come up with this idea of like adventure, come with us, that your land is useless. And you know, these poor folks, you know, fight in some war for three or four years, 
four or five typically, but yeah. Five years to the point. And then it's basically an elaborate ruse to kind of take away their property away from them to just- It's not, well, yeah, but that's the thing is that it's not even a ruse. I mean, it's like, there are threats to Rome. Someone needs to fight them. Yeah. And it's it's more like I would say it's less of a ruse and more like they're just really badly being taken advantage of. What's going to happen more and more, though, is so one thing to note at this point in time is that the enlisting in the Roman military is like a great honor. Right. People want to serve in the military mm-hmm. and it actually you pay to be in the military, not the other way around. Right. Um, you well, sorry, it's like a little bit of both. So one, you will get money by basically stealing it from other people but like they don't supply you with equipment Mm -hmm. you know they don't give you weapons you have to bring them and so the upper class are the leaders not just because of the fact that they uh, are you know socially important but because they're the only ones for example that can afford horses right how are you going to be in the cavalry if you don't have a horse the, it starts to become a problem for Rome because the the ratios of like rich, middle class, and poor is getting thrown off by the the land grabbing. By the time of of the Gracchi brothers, which is what I think we talked about in one of our first podcasts, income inequality is off the charts. It's a level that like you couldn't even comprehend in the United States. You know, imagine, imagine if, if every state was owned by like one person. Wow. And now you're thinking in the right level of income inequality, right? Imagine if like all of the land in New York was owned by a guy, (laughs) right? And, and you pay rent to that guy. And when you work, your business pays rent to that guy. And yeah, that's the level that we're talking about. New York, twenty fifty five. Maybe <laughs> we're getting there. We are. Um, and so, some politicians attempted to alleviate the problem, but the problem is one: like the Gracchi brothers, they're the most famous, right? Tiberius Gracchi. The problem is that one: these fixes were te- were only temporary, and within a couple of years, things would really quickly revert back to the way that they were because the rich just have so much power and so much money and so much influence that there's really no law that can curb them mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they are wielding power and the power that you wield as like the, the Republic is, is insignificant to the power of money and resources. And then the other reason is that no, no politician in Rome is ever, I mean, this is... I don't want to speak in absolutes, uh, but no politician in Rome or anywhere really is ever just like this totally virtuous person who's just trying to do the right thing because they're a nice guy. It's always at least a little bit for their own personal growth, power and advancement. Right. 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 Because of that, even if you have good ideas for like how to fix things, your political enemies will block you. And we see that today. We see that today where people have ideas that are maybe good ideas, but like you won't accept it because it's coming from someone that you don't like. And you know whether, I guess I don't want to say you know, you think might be true, might not be true, that that person is using this as either a trick to enrich themselves or that they do plan on doing a good thing. But it, it's, it's only a stepping stone to make them more powerful so they could do bad things later on. Anyone who's not a sociopath would say free, free uh, college for anyone who wants it is good. Not talking about money, not talking about infrastructure. We're not talking about anything other than, hey, if you could snap your fingers and have everyone get free college, would you do it? Only a, a lunatic would be like, no, I want people to stay uneducated. Right. The, 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 the minutia of it starts to come in when people say, like, I want that, but I don't know how we're going to pay for it. Right. Right. And the minutia comes in when people start to distrust that person. Right, right. 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 And so in this way, these kind of like cult of personality people, their their like red versus blue mentality gets wrapped up in policy. 
And so good ideas can be left on the cutting room floor because the person who proposed it has too big of an adversarial group who said, I can't let this through no matter what, because, well, frankly, I just don't like you. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, I think there's a few signs that I always look for. Like I, I don't know how many people are like this, but I think that it's, I love great ideas. I like nuanced ideas. I like, uh, we love ideas that are novel. You know, we love, that's why so many people are supporting Andrew Yang now for mayor of New York, because he has the novel idea of UBI, even though it goes back to uh, Thomas Paine. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think, I, I think that the idea though is you can love a novel idea, but I think it's also okay to, to go under the hood and ask more questions and be like, okay, well, how exactly are we paying for that? What's your plan for this? Who does this redistribution go to specifically? How do we prevent people from double dipping? How do you know, like, yep. I, I don't think that asking if these, it depends how you ask these questions. So you could pose these questions as in like, well, I, I think you're just lying and like, here's why your thing is not going to work. Or you could actually ask those questions uh, from a gen, you know, from, from a point of sincerity of like, Hey, I think this is a great idea. I really do have some questions that I need answering. And I think that's a subtle art that's kind of lost in politics today. Whereas we're, we're either, we're asking these questions to intentionally derail good ideas or novel ideas. We're not actually asking those questions because we're really curious about if this thing is viable or feasible. And we, we automatically ascribe the worst possible intentions to Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang and say, no, 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 you're just trying to give poor people false hope or something like that. We don't actually ask the genuine questions to advance the issue. Yeah, so if this was Roman times, the universal basic income, like hypothetically could go in two directions, well, multiple directions, but two negative directions it could go in could be one, something like uh, everyone gets universal basic income and it's working for like a year, but then what ends up happening is landowners find a loophole where they're able to claim everyone who lives on their property as dependents and can collect their universal basic income. And then basically uh, anyone who lives in an apartment building would suddenly not get UBI anymore. It would all go to the landlord instead. And now all of a sudden, instead of paying rent, you're paying your entire income as rent, right? <laughs> and then they, you, you try to get it changed, but then like, it gets bogged down in, in Congress and Senate and you have people saying like, oh, you know, you, you're trying to make it so, so single mothers and proud fathers who are just trying to take care of their kids can't get income and you want to give it to other people instead. How dare you try to change this law? Right. Right. right and right. and you, you galvanize people for the wrong reasons. And then another way it could go again in Rome would be this gets passed. People love Andrew Yang for it. And then he uses this to basically like bully some of his political opponents out of office and uh, kind of take their spot at the top and then maybe form an army and take over New York. Right. right Probably right. won't happen. I'm yeah. So no, I, I, I think he's a genuinely decent guy. I don't think he he's... is. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't strike me as like a military genius. I think we'll be OK. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. OK, so but but you can always your adversary always can create that fear, whether it's true or untrue, that you would Absolutely. potentially do something like that. Or like one one like talking point I hear from conservatives a lot is like, oh, well, they're trying to make you dependent on them, yep. right? So that's like, I think the equivalent of that is like, they want you to be dependent. If you don't vote for them, your entitlements will be taken away and so forth. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like something that's like a good, like healthcare or universal basic income is basically sold as well that's just chains of dependency so that you're dependent to the state or something like that and and again it's it's taking something that we all agree to be good but then you're framing it as as like oh this is this is this is going to be the way they enslave you yeah yeah there's definitely this idea especially among republicans of rugged individualism if you can't survive on your own anything that's taking away from that is bad in the long run, right? It's like you're being tricked, essentially, <laughs> like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So if I get that important surgery that I really need, I'm actually enslaving myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right? Yes. Everything's better. a life lesson. It's like, 
it, it's better to die a free man than to, to dare to dare have my prescription drugs taken care yeah. of for me. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's legitimately how they see it. So I, I think that maybe the left's version of that would be any form of free enterprise is, you know, it has like a, a malicious intent. It's just there to exploit you. It's just there. Um, like, like, for example, I, I think there's a, a way of framing that there's no such thing as a benevolent inventor or somebody who actually wants to start a private enterprise because they want to advance humanity. It's always, it's always for nefarious purposes. It's always, I want to dominate the world. I want to exploit and drain the value out of all of my workers. And I, I think that like, obviously, you know, do corporations need to be regulated? Absolutely. But there might, there might generally just be people who have great ideas and they want to start a private enterprise and they, they, they have a vision or a product they want to sell that will ultimately make our, our world a better place. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a good example of, of it on both sides. Yeah. So income inequality is starting to become a problem for for Rome because Rome, one of the rules about who can serve in the army is you have to be a citizen. And to be a citizen, you have to own land, right? And more and more Roman Romans are not landowners anymore. Wow. So this all comes to a boiling point in the early 100s BC when a general consul named uh, Marius institutes what are known as the Marian reforms. And... He does a bunch of things to enable Rome's military to stay in fighting shape with a side effect of making the military highly loyal to its commanding general and not loyal to the government. So one thing that he does is he abolishes the land requirement. Anyone can serve in the military now. You don't need to be a landowner, right? Which seems fair. Also, from now on, the the Roman soldiers used to have their bags carried for them and like richer soldiers would um you know have more people carrying their more luxurious stuff with marius that ends it's everyone carries their own stuff they're now marius also kind of says uh in not so many words like no more citizen farmers like beating their plowshares into swords and becoming soldiers we now are going to have a professional military okay right and so what that means is that you now have a military that is equipped by their general. You have a military that is paid by their general. It is not a duty. It is now a job. Technically, the equipment is given by the state, but it's really given by like the general. Ba- basically, and I think we talked about this on a, a previous podcast that not all generals were created equally. So some generals would pay their soldiers a lot more. Some would come with better perks, like I'll let you keep uh, a higher percentage of your plunder and so forth. So is that that's where that loyalty is now kind of um, shifting from from the state to the generals because these generals have such varying and different kind of benefits packages for their soldiers. Yeah, so Marius, it, it's it's difficult to say, it's difficult to editorialize like this, but it's unlikely that Marius instituted these changes because he had some insidious plot to destroy the Republic. He just needed more manpower for his war in Africa. And this was the way to get it. Let poor people be in the military, Mm -hmm. right? These poor people don't have formal training like the middle and upper class do. So they require a, a stricter regimen. And so you need those reforms as well. He wasn't planning on destroying his country it was more like we need more people these people are going to need to be trained we don't have the resources to have um a bunch of people carrying everyone's bags with this larger military so everyone's going to have to carry their own stuff and you have this it's funny they they called his soldiers they called them marius's mules (laughs) because they but the and people made fun of them but they ended up being like one of the most effective Roman militaries of all time because of how physically fit they were because of all the shit they had to carry. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's a huge deal. Like it was, he was a war hero because of how effective partially because of how effective his soldiers were. This is, this is kind of where like the Roman, the, 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 the myth of like Roman supremacy where they just could never be defeated and there's so like one Roman soldier is worth like a thousand barbarians. Like, this is kind of <laughs> where it starts. 
Yeah, yeah, that's carrying stuff can help you. I mean, I'm always shocked. I think like the physical requirements are for like a U.S. Marine to have to carry like a, a hundred pound book bag at all times. And I, I just, you know, sometimes when I was like going to college with my like 15 pound book bag, I was like, ah, you know, my shoulder or whatever. But I can only imagine these guys carrying like, you know, sometimes like up to their body weight at all times. Oh, yeah. Them, like for, for countless hours at a time. And the, the no land requirement that was supposed to be temporary. But the problem is, is that it was so effective and he did so well with it that it became difficult for Rome to go back to the old way. Like, how are you gonna tell a general, like, no, you need to do this with less, less people who are more poorly trained. Like, it makes no sense, mm, right? right? Yeah. So of course they kept it the way that it was. And this like influx of, of people who treat the military as a job and not as a duty kind of starts to spell doom for the empire, for the, the Republic, because now you have people who are not there for fun. They're not there for glory. They're, they're there to work and they'll just, they'll do what their boss says because they don't want to get fired. I guess the ideals, I guess the virtues start to fade away when it just becomes more like, oh, this is what I do for a paycheck. Yeah, the Jugurthan War, which is the war where all of this kind of happened in, in North Africa, is a turning point in Rome for its military, one that it will never come back from. And Marius, you know, um, he, this, we are one generation away from Julius Caesar. Right, right. right. Who, will, who will take all of these reforms one step further. And 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 use these reforms to kind of topple the republic because now you know we went from the the mid 700s bc where we had soldiers who were citizens fellow citizens farmers noble who fought for a cause and fought to protect home and hearth to you know approximately six to seven hundred years later and now you have julius caesar's soldiers who are well trained well disciplined by him specifically paid by him specifically and they don't have farms to go home to this is their job this is their life right i think this is actually a, a fantastic place to pause because we, we've already spoken about like uh, the, the various ways that Julius Caesar enticed people and all the stuff that he oh, did. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm thinking in my head, I want to look at some big trends here as, as as to what like maybe made like living in the Romulus administration so fantastic or so great <laughs> <Administration>. and, <laughs> and, and what, what kind of maybe made, you know, the rise of Julius Caesar, you know, while from a dramatic standpoint, really awesome, great storytelling there, but maybe not so much fun for the average just citizen there on the floor. And I, I, I see a few things. I think one, uh, something to point to is that when average citizens have property, I think that's really important to, to create buy-in. And I, I have this theory that and I, I was really, I've been really thinking a lot of my my thought process is thinking about what creates buy-in, and I have this theory or this idea that when people have something to lose, they tend to they they tend to value it that much more. And, and I'll explain. If you own your own home, Brett, okay, but let's just say even if it's with a thirty-year mortgage or whatever, you own your own home, you tend to take a lot better care of it than if you're just renting a room from some guy. I, I feel like you, you, you take that, you, you know, the way that you open up a cabinet, the way that you take care of the floor, like, whoa, that's marble, be careful. Whereas when you're just renting out a room, you're like, all right, you know, I might be here for three or four years and then I'm going to get the hell out of here. I don't really care about having another paint job or something. And I think the same can actually be said about Rome is that even if you just own a small acre of farmland, if you have something to lose or you have something that you're proud of, it, it kind of creates a, a better buy-in. I, I think you're, 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 you value your community, you value what it is that you have because you have something that can be taken away, that can be taken away from you, something that you cherish. And I, I overall think that that perhaps leads to a, a better sense of virtue because like you care if you're a homeowner you care about what's going on in your community because you're worried that oh my god my home my, my property value is going to drop so for example yeah. if you're buying a home and people are just leaving trash all over the place you're like hey this is a huge problem 
And you think it's a huge problem, not just because you're a virtuous recycling dude, although maybe you are, but you're also partly concerned like, hey, this is this is where my house is at. This is where my children are going to live. And I have a stake in this community. And I think that when people stop having a stake in what it is that they're a part of, virtue begins to decline. How, how does that theory sound to you, Brett? Yeah, I, I would 100% agree that that buy-in is necessary for communities to function. People without stake, without that buy-in, um, there's no reason for people to put in the level of attention and care that would you know, improve the, the area. Because like you said, you could just move. I mean, like plenty of times I've, uh, plenty of times I've like thought about moving because I maybe like don't like my neighbors or something. But, you know, I wouldn't do that if I had a house, right? Like you said. When people have stuff that they value, when they have stuff that they're afraid to lose or afraid to watch it depreciate, it's almost like it's a part of themselves in a way. I feel like that how, like they, we have this this term like proud homeowner. So it implies that like your farm or your home is somehow a part of who you are. We take a lot of pride in, in taking nothing and building something out of it. And I think that when more people become tenants, when more people become sharecroppers, you don't necessarily take pride. Like if you're a feudal serf, it's not your land. You don't really care as much. Okay. Yeah. If, if the farmland's completely gone, you'll starve to death, but you don't have that, that necessarily like, what's the difference between this baron running your land and some other baron coming over and taking over your land. You don't have pride and you don't have stake in what's actually occurring. Yep. That's absolutely right. It becomes, it did become, uh, you became loyal to who was paying you the most money. I think there's some lessons here about how the U.S. could become a little bit more like that early Romulus administration. And it's harder. It's definitely harder. Like the more people that you have in a country or in a society or a civilization, the harder it is to manage them. There's no, there's no doubt about that. When we're looking at public policy, when we're looking about the way that we get this civilization moving, the more buy-in, the more people have invested in this country, the higher their virtues and the higher their values will be. And it's not just because they're good people, it's because they have something to lose. Brett, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This concludes the 14th part in our series, Rome, The Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.